Hi, everyone. Welcome. In lesson one of Judaism for Beginners, we looked at what is Jewishness? What does it mean to be Jewish? And I thought today it would be nice to do a bit of a deep dive into how we define Jewishness. So I think in the world today, being Jewish can either be defined as a religious identity, a cultural identity, a national identity, or a racial identity. I'm going to take a look at all four, and I'm going to let you decide. You see, my job as a teacher is to just educate. I don't want to decide for you what is Jewishness and how Jewishness is defined. So I'm just going to lay down what I believe are the basic uh, cliff notes or, or Coles notes facts on each of these four elements. And maybe I'm going to add a fifth as well. And uh, you, you can take a look at it and you can listen or not and decide for yourself where you think it falls and what you think is important and not important. So let's talk about religious identity. I hear people say that there are, I don't know, X number of Muslim states and X number of Christian states, and there's one Jewish state. They're likely thinking that Jewish identity is religious in nature. They're comparing Jews to Muslims. They're comparing Jews to Christians, which Islam and Christianity are clearly religious identities. I hear people say, I'm not Jewish, but my parents are Jewish, or my parent was Jewish. They're likely thinking that Jewish identity is religious. What they're trying to say is that while their parents believe or their parents practice, they themselves don't believe or practice. So they're not quote unquote Jewish. This means that in their minds, Jewish identity is religious in nature, with the result that if you stop doing religious things, you would no longer be Jewish. And I think this is the most common perception that Jewish and being Jewish is religious. There are many Jews who are who, who will tell you they're not religious. There are many Jews who will tell you they don't believe in God. They don't practice. Yet, they consider themselves Jewish. And they are right. And at the same time, generally speaking, in the case of religions, people assume that you are part of a faith group because you hold a certain set of beliefs. In most people's minds, it makes no sense for a person to be Christian or Muslim or atheist because the very fact that you identify as Christian or Muslim, for example, means that you believe in God. One of the most difficult situations that 
I occasionally find myself in are these multi-faith events where they'll invite a priest and uh, a Muslim and uh, a Buddhist poet. And of course, to complete the joke, they got to invite the rabbi, right? They got to invite the Jew. And they'll always talk about faith. What faith are you? Oh, you're of Jewish faith. And I can tell you the truth. And here I am as a rabbi saying this. So I can't imagine how other people think. I'm uncomfortable with that. I don't know. I don't know what I believe. And the truth is, I don't know if that matters necessarily in as talking about or proving or being Jewish. So to most people, identifying as Jewish does not necessarily say anything about your beliefs. Some people identify as Jewish, but they practice a different religion. And some people don't even believe in God. Yet in their eyes, in society's eyes, and in the eyes of the Jewish community, and halacha, which is Jewish law, they are as Jewish as Abraham, as Moses, as Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, Miriam, or any of the Jewish heroes in Jewish history that in our course we're going to get to a lot of those. So to be sure, I'm not saying that there's no such thing as Judaism in a Jewish lifestyle. Of course there is. We're going to delve into that. But the fact remains that engaging in that lifestyle is not what makes someone Jewish and ignoring it doesn't render you un-Jewish. Now let's take a look at cultural identity. There are some people say, um, I eat knishes and bagels and I watch Seinfeld, so I'm Jewish. And they're likely thinking that Jewish identity is, is cultural in nature. But if it's a culture, what are its essentials? Gefilte fish, salakwit, herring, couscous, falafel, donuts, uh, uh, latkes, Sephardic, Ashkenazic, Yemenite. I think that if you take a look at Judaism, there are so many different traditions And those traditions are influenced from so many different places. And if Jewishness is a culture, and there are many Jewish cultures, it would be more appropriate to speak of the Jewish people, or maybe the Jewish peoples as plural, as opposed to the Jewish people as a singular. But no one says Jewish peoples. Yet, Culturally, we have been influenced by so many different places. Maybe it's because we have been thrown out of so many countries and we've ended up becoming dispersed among so many other different places and, 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 and cultures. And we've adapted some of those cultures, which is, which is in a way, I think, really beautiful and really special. Yet, I don't think you can say this is particular Jewish culture. I mean, if you ask, let's say, a Sephardic Jew, to eat gefilte fish, if you know what gefilte fish is. It always, if you go fishing for gefilte fish, it's always the one with the carrot on top, just so you know. 
a Sephardic Jew will never eat gefilte fish. And, you know, here in Montreal, I have to play both Sephardic and Ashkenazic. So I have salakwit, which is like this really nice spicy uh, tomato dip that Sephardic Jews like on top of my gefilte fish. So that way I can kind of get both in and have that nice, really cultural Jewish experience. But you see, you know, even though it's tongue in cheek, I'm saying that you can't define any specific culture and say this culture is Judaism. Let's talk about national identity. I remember this, an elderly Russian man who I used to visit. He used to say to me, I am Russian, you are Jewish. So I think in his eyes, he was thinking that Jewish identity is national in nature. But the the fundamental factors of a modern nation or uh, a modern nation state is a large group of people living within a certain territory, speaking a single language, or at least belonging to a common culture. I don't think that has applied to the Jewish people for a very long time. Ever since the destruction of the kingdom of Israel, most Jews have not been concentrated in a single region, in a single land. We've been scattered in many diverse places in the world. As for language, in spite of the fact that Hebrew is and will always be our holy tongue, the Jews have mostly spoken the languages of their surrounding societies. Think about the language that I'm speaking to you in right now. And today, in what we call the diaspora, which means outside of the land of Israel, the knowledge of Hebrew is limited to only a small number of Jews. Most Jews today don't speak Hebrew outside of Israel. And it's the word Israeli that can be properly designated as a term for modern nationality. And that includes people of all faiths, of all races and cultures, people who who are Israeli in, in nationality. Actually, today they're uh, they're they're having an election right now, and this election, I mean, the last time I checked, which was a few minutes ago, uh, is becoming dependent upon one of the Palestinian parties. You know, so many people talk about uh, Israel being an apartheid state, but it looks like their democratic election may be decided on a based on a Palestinian party in the Knesset, which is really an amazing thing if you think about. True. I, I consider that a true democracy, but it's not necessarily Jewish. We're talking about Israeli. That's a nationality. So there are there are Palestinian Israelis and there are Christian Israelis, people who live in the state of Israel. But the term Jew is distinct from this. And it's widely understood to be distinct from a national identity. On the other hand, If somebody wants to regard Jews as as members of a nation, not in the sense of borders or, or language, but in the sense of a large group of people 
with a common link. That would be an acceptable definition of a Jew. But the question I think would be is, is what is the link? We'll be back after a quick break. Are you tired of swiping right on every dating app out there and still getting nowhere? Are you convinced that you'll forever be alone, surrounded by nothing but uh, cats and empty takeout containers? <laughs> Hi, I'm Aliza Ben Shalom, the host of the new show, Jewish Matchmaking, which you can find on Netflix. And I'm the love rabbi, Rabbi Yisrael Bernath, and we're inviting you to join us for Matchmaker Matchmaker. Each week, we'll answer one of your pressing relationship questions, from how to get over your ex to how to deal with your partner's annoying habits. So if you're ready to laugh, uh, cry, or maybe even find love, then tune in to Matchmaker Matchmaker, and it's available now wherever you listen to your podcasts. Now let's take a look at racial identity. So we looked at religious identity. We looked at cultural identity. We just looked at national identity. Now let's take a look at racial identity. I hear people say that Hitler, may his name be erased, wanted to get rid of the Jewish race. But if it's a race, how come we have Asian Jews and Caucasian Jews and Ethiopian Jews? And if we were a race, we would presumably be Semites. But the term Semites, even though it's often or only used to describe the Jews, it could include people that are Semitic, which are more peoples than the Jews. So it wouldn't be helpful to define Jewish identity. Actually, I believe that this term anti-Semitism it, it originally was a term that was made by people who wanted to uh, make Jew hatred uh, more regular and more, you know, more common. And so they use the term Semite. I think that we should not be calling it anti-Semitism and rather we should be calling it Jew hatred because today who knows what a Semite is and isn't. And the truth is that, that, that there are so many peoples that can call themselves Semites, even though, again, I haven't heard the term Semite used for anyone else besides a Jew, but that's because I don't consider myself, let's say, the average person. You know, I've 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 heard Semites in in so many different contexts where not everyone has heard that. So I don't think, I and mean, this is a, a separate topic all on its own. But I don't think that Semite is a good word to use for the Jews, and especially when it comes to anti-Semitism. I think we should be using Jew hatred. Call it what it is. Um. Then I ask the question: What does it mean to be Jewish? Is it possible that Jewishness can be any of them? It could be religious, it could be cultural, it could be national, it could be racial. I think that if this were the case, there would be very little meaning to the term Jewish community, which by definition implies a strong commonality between its members. Like the terms like Jewish people or Jewish unity, it will be meaningless. So why are these terms so widely used by Jews today? And 
what does it mean to be Jewish? I want to propose to you tonight a bit of a, a different look. Jewish identity doesn't fit neatly into the modalities of identity that the Western world typically uses to define groups of people. And I think it's important to pause and, and look at it like this. So often in our society, we're trying to put people in boxes. We're trying to label people. I said this in my class and I'll say it again. Labels are for shirts and not for people. So often I get othered because of the way I look. I wear a kippah, I have a beard. When I walk in the street, I look, you know, quote unquote Jewish, whatever that means. Doesn't mean I'm more or less Jewish than anyone else. And so we're constantly trying to put people in a box. Oh, there's a Jew. Oh, you're a Jew? That must mean you believe such and such or you follow such and such. Whoa, 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 whoa. I wouldn't say that about anyone else. Definitely, why should someone say that about me? And I think even more so. What I would say is that, or some people will say, you people, right? And I will say back, you people, there's just maybe more of you. So the Western world typically uses words to define groups of people. And in my opinion, the Jewish people don't fit into any of those groups. Maybe that's why everyone's so confused about us. So in order to understand Jewish identity and how to take a look at what it means to be Jewish, I think I want to take a look at another way of looking at Judaism. And I'm just going to propose this to you. Again, I'm here to not here to, to, to make any definitive decisions. I'm just saying that I gave you four terms. And I think if you're following this conversation that we're having, it's very hard to define one. Maybe we can define all four. We can say religious, racial. Uh, we can say uh, cultural. We can say nationality. But we can't say one specific. But let's take a look at a different way of looking at it. How people refer to themselves in speech and in writing, I think, give us an insight into the way they conceive the, of their own identity. And one of the things that I love today about appropriation is that we want the people themselves to define who they are. There's no way that I should speak for another culture or another people's, but I'll speak for myself and maybe for my own people. But you know what, even so, maybe I'll just speak for myself. And so the, the way that I conceive my own identity today is looked at with such importance and such value. Take um, an organization like the DAV, the Disabled Veterans of America. I think that the name Disabled Veterans of America is self-understood. It's a group of people whose connection is based on two facts. Number one, they're veterans, which means they served in the U.S. military, and B, they suffered a disability while in service. So I'd like to attempt, attempt, <laughs> this is a hard one here, but I want to attempt to do the same 
and get a sense of Jewish identity. Let's take a look at the Torah. The best way to talk about the Jews is look at the book. The book that talks about the genesis of the Jews. The Torah, the Bible, the five books of Moses. So, for those of you who are not clear about the Torah, let me just take a moment and focus on the Torah. See, so often I take these things for granted. Who doesn't know about the Torah? Who doesn't know about the Bible? So if you know about the Torah and Bible, you can skip this part. That's the joy of having the recording here. If you don't know about the Torah Bible, maybe this will be interesting for you. Or maybe if you do, this will also be interesting. If you presented the Torah to someone, they might call it the Bible. Some might call it the Old Testament. But to us, Old Testament implies that there's something new that was changed or replaced. So that's not a term Jews use because we don't have anything new. The Torah is exactly the same. It's the five books of Moses. There are 306,805 letters in a Torah scroll. The Torah from the day one has been written on parchment with a special ink by a trained scribe. There's a special way of writing the Torah. One of the things I love about the Torah scroll, if you've never seen a scroll, a Torah scroll, I'm not going to bring it up here. You can just Google it, Torah scroll. You can see that today, if you go into a synagogue and the Torah is read every single Monday, Thursday, and Saturday, the Torah is read. And there's other special holidays and occasions the Torah is read as well. It'll be read from a scroll. It's parchment. Still to this day, exactly the same way it's been done for the past 3,000 plus years. It's read from a scroll, on parchment, and if one letter of the 306,805 letters is missing, or it's even cracked, that parchment can't be used. And there's a lot of really beautiful reasons for it, that each one of us has a letter in that scroll. And if one of us is missing, or damaged, or, or cracked, then the entire whole is missing. That each one of us make the entire whole. And there's a tremendous beauty in that you think that, who am I? You know, in the words of Mark Twain, I'm but a dim puff in the blaze of the Milky Way. No, you're not. You're not a dim puff in the blaze of the Milky Way. You matter. The fact that God decided that you should be born in this time, in this place, it means that your soul has something unique that it can give to the world. And the, if the Torah represents our soul, then each one of us has a letter. And if there's one letter missing or damaged, then the entire Torah can't be read. Going back to the idea of Torah, even the word Bible is not a Jewish word. The word Bible comes from Greek. It means book. Although I will say this, that we do consider it quite flattering that the generic word for book in some of history's most significant languages, like Greek, refers to our book. Thank you very much. We will take it. We take, look, we'll take whatever accolades we can get. We don't get too many, so let's take them. In Hebrew, 
The word Torah does not mean book. The word Torah means guidance. It means instruction. Because other texts that explain these five books are a continuing guide to living Jewishly that can explain why maybe why essentially all Jewish teaching and guidance and books can be sometimes referred to as a Torah in a broader sense, because it's really, this is, this is, this is the main book. Everything comes from here. It's all right here in the Torah. These five books, the five books of Moses, as they're called, you know, Bereshit, Shemot, Vayikra, Bamidbar, Devarim. In Greek, it's not a good translation, or, or in Latin, they said it was Genesis and Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are not necessarily translations that we think are very good, but we use them because they've become pretty common folk as far as uh, Latin words go. These five books, I would say, could also be compared to the Jewish constitution and that they still set down the bedrock principles of Jewish life. And I think it's still much more than that. It has stories, it has poems, narratives that provide all sorts of ethical teachings, of lessons, of guidance. And while the Torah is the fundamental text of all Judaism, it's also true that many other people have found its wisdom to be fascinating and timeless. And I think I'd like to go through that and talk about how people have adopted certain elements of the Torah. And that's something that's, that's very beautiful and very special. So by examining the Torah as the magnum opus of the Jewish people, I think maybe we can come up with a framework that can give us an insight into Jewish identity. So Jews make their first appearance in the middle of the book of Genesis, in the middle of the book of Bereshit. But there's a little caveat here. The word Jew is never used anywhere in the first five books, in the five books of Moses. There is the Tanakh, there is the prophets and the writings. There are other books that we can talk about. But in the five books of Moses, in the Torah, the word Jew is never used. Jew comes from the word Judah much later in Jewish history. So how are Jews referred to in the Torah? Think about it. Jews in the Torah are referred to as the children of Israel. More than 500 times in the five books and subsequent biblical books, no other term is used as frequently to refer to the Jewish people, not even close. What does children of Israel mean? So, 1800 years before the Common Era, there was a man named Abraham, and he married Sarah, Mazel Tov. They had a child named Isaac who was married to Rebecca, and they had a child, Jacob. And Jacob's name was changed, as the Torah said. If you go look in the book of Genesis, and I just opened it up here, uh, Genesis 35, 9, and 10. It says, uh, after Jacob returned from Padanaram, 
I'm just translating it here for you from the Hebrew. Uh, God appeared to him again and, and blessed him. And God said to him, uh, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. And so he named him Israel. So Israel is this Jacob, the third patriarch of Jewish history. There's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who's also Israel. And he had 12 sons, and they are the 12 tribes, who are known as the 12 tribes, at least. And when they came to Egypt, which is a whole story all on its own that we'll get to when we talk a little bit about Jewish history, uh, they were a family of 70 people. And so I want to just take a look at the first, the beginning of the book of Exodus, the first chapter, the first uh, seven verses. It says, and these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each man and his household, Reuben, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Yisachar, Zavulon, Binyamin, Dan, and Naphtali, God, and Asher. Now, all those descendants, descended from Jacob, who were 70 souls, and Joseph was already in Egypt. The children of Israel were fruitful and swarmed and increased and became very, very strong, and the land became filled with them. So while they were in Egypt, they began to multiply. So you see what's going on here? We have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob turn to Israel. He has 12 tribes. When they have to move from their homeland because of a famine, there I told you, there was a famine, and they went to Egypt. There were 70 of them. That means them and their wives and their kids. There were 70 descendants of Israel, the children of Israel. And then Exodus continues. Uh, the journey, uh, this is later on in chapter 12. The children of Israel journeyed from Ramses, uh, from Egypt to, to Sukkot, and there were 600,000 on foot, the men in addition to the young children. So they were slaves. They originally, according to the Midrash, were supposed to be slaves for 400 years. The Midrash is the book of homiletics. But they ended up being slaves for 210 years. And throughout those 210 years, the 70 people became 600,000. So the Jews that left Egypt the story of Passover, the story of the exodus of Egypt, the Jews that left Egypt, they totaled 600,000. So through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, 12 tribes, 70 came down to Egypt. Now they're leaving Egypt 210 years later at 600,000. They are still all the children of Israel. Hundreds of thousands of Jews who left Egypt, they all were descendants of Israel. And that's why they and we are called the children of Israel. They all shared this common ancestry. And I think this is the simplest definition of a Jew. A Jew is someone who is a descendant of Jacob, of Israel. So I think, obviously, we can, we'll talk about conversion and coming into the tribe, but the tribe, the tribe of Israel. This is would be the simplest definition of what makes up a Jew. Then you don't have to talk about belief and ideas and, and, and nationality and, and race and, and religion. It's not about that. It's about family. What is Judaism? Judaism is a family. We're all part of an extended family. And that's why the Torah calls us B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel. And it employs this name to highlight that we are members of a large family with a shared ancestry. 
our identity as an extended family expresses itself in interesting ways. So religions or, or groups usually have founders. Judaism does not refer to anyone as its founder. We call Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the first Jews, but we call them our fathers. And Sarah, Rebecca, Rebecca Rachel, and Leah, they're, our, they're the first Jewesses, but they're our mothers. They're not our founders. They're our fathers and mothers. We don't relate to them as founders of Judaism, but as the ancestors, as our grandparents. The Torah, that's our family story. It's not his story or her story. It's not history. It's our story. It's our family story. That's our family book. And in a similar way, religions and other groups often celebrate holidays to commemorate the events of their founders. What are our most famous holidays about? Passover is a, is a celebration of our families liberation from Egypt, our ancestors, our parents were let out of Egypt. Not only that, but when we sit at the Passover Seder, we are to tell our children the story that happened to us when we left Egypt. We're supposed to tell the story in the present sense. And there's a lot of reasons for that. We can go into the more Kabbalistic and spiritual ideas behind that at a different time. But think about that. It's not a story of our founder. It's our family story. We're sitting around the table sharing the story that happened to us, to our parents, and to our grandparents. Shavuot, another holiday. It's a celebration of the giving of the Torah to our ancestors. Sukkot, a holiday that just passed. A celebration that's recalled when God protected our ancestors in the desert. Yom Kippur, that just passed is when God granted our ancestors forgiveness after they sinned by making a golden calf. Our holiday celebrations are imbued with a sense of our shared ancestry. So Jews, Jews are members of an extended family. I think I wanna probe this a little further. Various groups throughout history started as a family and they grew to a tribe and eventually they became so large that they forsook a family identity and they assumed a national identity. Even the Jews sometimes are called Am Yisrael, the nation of Israel, and not in a sense of language and borders, not like a nation state, but in a sense of a large group of people with a, with a common link. So why does the Torah insist on calling us the children of Israel again and again? Because eventually people move on from discussing distant ancestors and they care less about distant cousins. Children of Israel, it made sense when we were 70 that went down to Egypt 3,000 years ago, but it seems to make no sense when we became hundreds of thousands and today millions. But the Torah, even when we left Egypt, in the beginning of the book of Genesis, still holds fast to this name, the children of Israel. I think to answer this, and this is just one way of answering it, 
is that there's a shared ancestry that matters, and there's a shared ancestry that doesn't matter. People decide which family ties are relevant to them. And they make this decision based on many different factors. For example, if you if you live next door to your third cousin, or if a second cousin has information about a grandfather that you love or, or loved very much, it's likely that that familial bond between the two of you are going to be stronger than that that's with the other cousins, let's say. But when you connect with a particular family member, you're tapping into a family connection, which is different from other types of relationships. And I think here is my crucial point. The Torah is telling us that our, the Jewish peoples, being part of an extended family, that we are descendants of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. It defines us in important ways. It influences our lives in real ways. It binds us to each other in a close way. And a lot of this has to do with a unique spiritual connection that we share with one another. And another factor, I think, is a common mission that we all share, a lifestyle, a, a philosophy that is pertinent to all members of the family. And, and we're going to explore this later on. But the Torah keeps on saying, the children of Israel, it keeps on sounding that bell because it regards the Jews and it wants us to regard ourselves as members of an extended family. Even as we've become a nation, the Torah is telling us that the implications of family are never supposed to dissipate from our self-concept as Jews. And we're supposed to feel close and at home with each other as one feels with family. I'm gonna leave the conversation about converts for our class. But I wanna just say that, I hope that I've, I've given you a lot of really interesting ideas talking about four common terms then going into this fifth little term that the way the Torah describes it is the children of Israel and the goal of this little class here or conversation is to really talk about identity and it could be as a result of of, of listening to me, you have more questions. That's great. Remember, Judaism is all about questioning. So send me those questions. Let's continue this conversation. Let's try to figure out and try to understand. Because, you know, for me, it's very hard to a certain extent because I feel that over the years of my study, I, I've done the hard work. So, to a certain extent, I don't want to spoon feed it to you because then it's going to take away your curiosity. The most important gift that you have 
in every part of your life is your curiosity. It's what makes you excited about your relationships. It makes you excited about who you are. It makes you excited to wake up in the morning. And so I want to enhance that. I want to build that sense of curiosity for you. And so if you're curious, ask. And like I've said, sometimes there won't be answers, but it doesn't mean you don't ask. And it doesn't mean that you don't continue to ask. And so in this, this is the end of my little installment here. And I hope that we can continue this conversation and that we'll continue to ask. And maybe I'll have some questions for you as well. With that in mind, have a fantastic evening or morning or whenever you're watching this. Hi, Rabbi Bernath here. I have some great news for you. My popular four-week course, Kabbalah for Everyone, is available right now for free for the next 50 people who download it. All you have to do is go to www.theloverabbi.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you're going to see the download button right there. In this course, I talk about the Kabbalistic secrets to relationships, to wealth, to happiness and balance. This special offer has been dedicated in loving memory of Ellie Dorfman. I look forward to hearing from you and hope you enjoy the course. Now on to today's episode.